Hello and welcome to the Scene Magazine podcast. My name's Alex Kleinberg and today I'm joined by Armistead Morpan, author of Tales of the City. We're going to be discussing his UK tour, his literary career and what Rock Hudson was really like. So what can we expect from your upcoming live appearances? You're doing one in London and one in Brighton in October. Well, the one in London, I'm being interviewed by um, uh, Russell Tovey. And in the Brighton uh, appearance, I'll be interviewed by Graham Norton. So you tell me what to expect. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very excited. I love both of these guys and uh, I think we'll have some fun. So you're very much associated with San Francisco, of course, but you've lived in London for quite a long time now. So what was it that drew you to London? My husband lived here 25 years ago and loved it. I've visited off and on because I have English relatives for years. And we just wanted a new adventure. And London is is a great city. There's no denying it. Sometimes if you ask a Londoner that, they will, they will deny it. But yeah. Um, we, we, uh, we've done this before, you know, we moved to Santa Fe about seven years ago, uh, for a new adventure. We didn't last there very long, moved back to San Francisco and, uh, we just decided to take the leap. It keeps life interesting. So I was rereading Tales of the City ahead of this interview. And one thing that really strikes me about it is it doesn't really have a clear protagonist. You have Marianne, Michael and Anna Madrigal, of course. But each one of those could be the star of Tales. But if you had to pick one, do do you see one of those characters as being the central protagonist, the kind of the glue that holds it all together? Um, If I had to name one, it would be Anna, Mrs. Madrigal. But... Uh, you're right. That was the, the the very process of writing it was about shifting my view from one character to the next, so they each get their moment. So it allows the I think it allows the reader to make their own decisions about that who they care about the most. Yeah, that's that's something I, I found really um, engaging about it. And so, like, kind of going back to the beginning. Um, I saw in the documentary on Netflix when you're talking about finding your topic after you, you know, moved to San Fran and exploring the Castro and this incredible gay scene that was emerging. Um, but nobody was really writing about it in any great detail. And, and you kind of point out it's, for a writer to find their subjects always, always a good thing. Um, but you pointed out that nobody else was really writing about it. So did you feel that you really kind of struck gold because not only was this your topic, it was something that nobody else was really covering. That's exactly what I felt. And I, it proved to be right. I mean, all these years later, um, the story has survived. And I knew that if I just was bold enough to do it, because there were people who were telling me I shouldn't do it. My own ed, my own publishers at HarperCollins said, tone down the gay stuff, you know. Well, I didn't tone down anything. Uh, at any point and I think it paid off it's when you, you know, when you know you have a good story to tell you just tell it that's what every writer must do and I was in the perfect place to do that you know writing good comic fiction is is not easy I guess it it reads easy it looks easy when, you, when you're reading it but um you know, it, you, comedy seems to come very naturally to you as a writer. Did you just know from the outset that it was going to be 
very comedic prose? I suppose I knew that it was to a certain degree. I, I didn't see what was coming. I didn't know we would be in the middle of a of an epidemic, uh, and that I would have to write about that too it, within the context of a, a, a basically a, a comedic work. Uh, I went to see uh, I went to see a play here in London, my first since lockdown last night. Uh, uh, my my night with Reg, which is a famous play. I interviewed Paul um, Taylor Mills about it. I think he's um, he's the guy that put it on. Ah, um, How was it? well, it was it was fascinating to to see the things that we've forgotten about that time. You know. Uh, what it felt like, the combination of terror and um, humor and and even lust, which did survive through AIDS with serious modifications. You know, one thing I found really interesting in the documentary is when you describe meeting Rock Hudson, because he was very much a figure of the previous generation. He lived his life very much in the closet and, and you represented the next generation and you were living far more openly. So when you met Rock Hudson, did it feel like he was giving you a glimpse of what the previous generation had gone through? It was exactly that. And I wanted him to find a way out. In fact, the night that we met, I said, let me write your biography. I I know how to do it. You know, I can, uh, there's no reason you can't claim the dignity of your life. Um, And he was scared to death of it. Even his husband at the time said, um, it wasn't his husband, but his partner said, not until my mother dies. <laughs> All I could think of was if I were fucking Rock Hudson, I, my mother would be the first to know about it. <laughs> she would understand that, you know? Mm, yeah. And in fact, I did fuck him and I did tell my mother. So there you go. <laughs> Wow. Was she impressed? I think she was a little horrified, but yes, she always loved him. Yes, goodness me. Yeah, I can imagine him visualizing that split screen with um, Doris Day in those movies. Um, (laughs) Yes, uh, that is just fascinating. And so... um, But but I I did see us as representative of two diametrically opposed versions of queer. You know, someone who had come out of the closet pretty early, uh, certainly in early in my career, and uh, someone who'd been locked into it for years and was suffering because of it. Rock had a groove in his fingernail uh, that was basically a deformity, which he'd created himself by rubbing his forefinger against his thumb. Uh, to me, that represented uh, the sort of self-torture he was always engaging in. He had a good time, though. He was a, he was a he was a happy gay man for all that's about. He should have been. Mm. He certainly had the resources to kind of keep it discreet in Palm Springs or wherever, and he wanted to go. Yeah, yeah. Um, so and the goods. He had the goods. <laughs> I could, I don't doubt. Well, you would know as well as anybody. Um, so. <laughs> This is something you kind of were touching on before would say, um, you know, it's a sin because I know Tales of the City was originally filmed in the early 90s. I think, was it by PBS, the network? Yes. Um, There was a big controversy, it all became very political. And even though it had done well, it it wasn't renewed. 
Um, but fast forward to 2019 and you have the, the Netflix adaptation of Tales of the City. Did that feel like you kind of gone full circle and resolved that unfinished business from the first series? Well, we got to do things that we didn't get to do in the first series. We had an out-of-the-closet actor playing Michael, which had always been my dream, uh, Murray Bartlett, who's now just wowing the world in The White Lotus. <clears throat> Have you watched that yet? No, I've not seen that yet. You know about it? No, this should be on my radar. I will have to watch it. Yeah, it should be. It, it's, it's got a great rimming scene. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sold. <laughs> You know, of course, Tales has been such a success on Netflix and, you know, there's been no controversy surrounding it. And that, that must have been quite, quite a relief because you had a real drama with PBS back in the day. PBS basically acquired a Channel 4 series. They didn't even produce it. And they were terrified of the Christian right in America. They were kicking they up the about it, weren't they? Yeah, they, they threatened to. There were bomb threats in Chattanooga the night it first aired. Tales of the City, that sweet little story. That is pretty wild. That's a long ways away. <laughs> it is, but that was, what, 93, I think? So, so in, in, in many ways, yeah. like fairly recent, actually. It just goes to show how, how things have, have changed. I mean, you think, yeah. you mentioned It's a Sin, which I think was the most um, uh, popular drama on, on Channel 4 when it came out. Then you think of all the Ryan Murphy programs that have LGBT storylines, and they're hugely popular on Netflix. Um, do you think this represents a major kind of cultural shift? Yes, I think the I think the uh, the dream I had that, that queer stories would become ordinary is coming true. Well, you know, the tales of the city books are very much of their time and of their place, but people who weren't even born in the seventies have found those books and really enjoyed them. So that must be a great thrill to you that new generations have rediscovered your work. Uh, it's the biggest thrill of my life that that's happening. Because it tells me that I was first and foremost telling a good story. And that works with any generation, any, you know, we can go back and read Dickens because he's really writing about the people, not about, uh, <clears throat> you know, the peculiarities of London in the mid-19th century. Does writing ever get easier as you build up more experience? Oh, that's a good question, because no, God damn it, it doesn't. <laughs> It depends on where you are. I have I found that lockdown has not been at all helpful for my writing. Mm. At, at the beginning of uh, of this experience, um, I thought, "Oh, this is great! I'll just sit in my room and write." And, but my mind has always been stoked by things happening on the outside, by other people, by parties, by places I've gone. Uh, that was true during Tales of the City. I would go out and, um, you know, to a club one night and some guy would pick me up because I was wearing penny loafers and, uh, and I could go into that, the joke of that. So it's been, I've, I've been trying to write another novel called Mona of the Manor that's an interstitial novel that would fit into the tales as it currently exists into the year 1993, as a matter of fact. But it's been tough, I have to admit. It's been kicking my ass. Yeah, I can imagine. I know a lot, a lot of writers have said that. Just having more time uh, doesn't, isn't necessarily a conducive. Doesn't mean creative. engine is going full tilt. That's right. Absolutely. Do you find that? 
well, you've got a job, so you have a legitimate job. <laughs> I'm just doing like so that must help to deadlines and yeah, so yeah, just kind of have to do kind of what I'm told. Um, but yeah, if it was just writing long form fiction, it would be yeah, it would be a different story, I would think. Yeah, because um, some writers are very associated with place. Um, you were, of course, very much associated with uh, San Francisco. And when I read about San Francisco in the papers now, it tends to be about, you know, Google, Silicon Valley, the astronomical cost of living, rather than the kind of the fabulous bohemianism of, of the Castro district. So has San Francisco changed unrecognizably or is the old San Fran still there? I'm sure it's still there, but um, we were having a hard time finding it. That's one of the reasons we left. It is no longer a, bohe- a bohemian city, whatever that meant originally. I didn't think of it at the time as bohemian. You, you hear the wrong stories in the cafes now. You know, they're all talking about work, and work is boring to my, for my money. Um, and it's very expensive. It's even more expensive than London. We, we get a, have a much better living situation here in Clapham than we did in the Castro. And Clapham is not cheap. And Clapham is not cheap. I am, I'm so proud to be associated with that city and at a, t- a time in that city. I'm glad I re- was able to record that in my work. It's always there. It will always be there for anybody who wants to know what it was like to live in San Francisco at the end of the 20th century. Um, so that's a feather in my cap that I will always show off. Yeah, I'm lucky because I'm very in love with somebody and have been for 17 years. And we do everything, we do things together. We make life happen together. It's, it's very easy to pick up and move to another place if, you, if, you're, if home is always with this one person. Well, that is a very good lesson. Armistead, thank you so much for talking to me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Same to you. I've enjoyed it. Armistead's events in Brighton and London have already happened, but you can probably catch them on YouTube. And you can, of course, rediscover Tales of the City, read the books, watch it on Netflix. It is a classic story.